Hello, and thank you for joining me for the History of Christianity. Today we're going to be talking a bit about the New Testament, who wrote it, and where it came from. So thanks for being here. So there's a common misconception that at some point around the middle of the first century, the New Testament fell out of the sky and into bookstores near you. Not actually what happened. Um, If you watch something on like the History Channel or maybe read a popular account, you might be told that the New Testament was sort of invented at the Council of Nicaea or by the Emperor Constantine, that there was some kind of smoky back room somewhere where they put together all the books that were in that didn't threaten his power, and they got rid of all the books that supported anything that was even vaguely questionable, like women's rights or something like that. But there's actually zero evidence for this. This is really kind of a made-up 20th century theory. So, That smoky back room did happen at one point. They did actually decide what books were in and what books were out. But it was about, it was actually over a thousand years later at the Council of Trent. And that was just for the Roman Catholic Church. And that council was just saying, okay, all these Protestants, they're kind of making up their own versions. James is either in or out. Revelation is either in or out. Um, Various books of the Old Testament, they're just saying they don't want to use anymore because they're not used in Renaissance-era Judaism, so we need to finalize the canon. But the Council of Trent is way, 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 way after all of this stuff. So, um, there was actually no point at which a bunch of people came together and said, okay, we have to use these 27 books and these others are out. Instead, it was a much more organic process. So, the various books of the Bible are composed in different places, written to different specific communities over the course of maybe 50 or 60 years after the resurrection. As we talked about a little last time, the first century was not primarily a written culture. So you didn't find your sources of authority primarily in a book that you could take down off the shelf and turn to a specific page and show someone the facts. Instead, it was much more of an oral culture. So in the early church, The majority of teaching went on from the pulpit, went on from the kind of teacher's seat in um, the synagogue or in the early church. It was much more about a kind of human interaction, and that's how the gospel was spread. In fact, if you look at a text like 2 Timothy 3.16, in which Paul talks about all scripture being inspired or all scripture written for a specific purpose, he doesn't actually mean the New Testament because there is no New Testament when Paul is writing. So, St. Paul is actually talking about the Old Testament. So, if you remember what we talked about in terms of Judaism, Jewish worship in the synagogue involved a lot of reading of scrolls of Torah. And this was not like they would take this book called the Torah down off the shelf and read from it. They had um, a cabinet full of scrolls, and the, the scrolls that were read in that synagogue were the scrolls that they had. So, of course, everyone would have the five books of Moses. Most would have all of, of what we think of now as the prophets. Some might also have some of the writings, um, books like, like Esther. But um, it kind of varied from synagogue to synagogue in terms of what they actually had in that sacred cabinet within some boundaries. 
And the canon of the New Testament is really put together eventually for the same purpose. So it's not meant to be a book that you download to your Kindle and read on your own. Of course, one can do that, one should do that with the Bible, um, but that's, that's not the reason that a canon was put together. The canon was put together just like in the synagogue for what you would actually read in public worship. What are the books that we think are essential for our community to be hearing that tell the story of God? Beyond in the church, different communities answer that question in different ways. So if you were in the city of Rome and you only had the Gospel of Mark, you read the Gospel of Mark every single Sunday. And that was the book that was read from the pulpit. Maybe also you had a letter written to your community that over time came to be so treasured that you would also read that letter, like Paul's letter to the Romans. And then certainly every single Sunday you would be reading from the books of the Old Testament, continuing on that synagogue worship tradition. As time went on, you might have a wealthy patron who hears that there is a copy of Matthew in Antioch, and they think, oh my gosh, it would be so wonderful if we had that to read in Rome. And so they make this huge financial outlay to have someone buy a whole bunch of vellum to write on, buy a whole bunch of ink, and painstakingly copy out that Gospel of Matthew, and then bring it back to Rome and present it as a gift to the church at Rome. Here is the Gospel according to St. Matthew. There's one contemporary scholar who estimates that just to make a copy of St. Paul's letter to the Romans, which is not that long, I mean, you can read it in like a fairly short sitting, would take about $5,000 in contemporary money. So if you're talking about a book many, many times as long, like the Gospel according to St. Matthew, the Gospel according to St. John, that's a lot of money. That's like a big donation. But as time went on, it became more and more common for people to pay for these books to be copied. And eventually, by the 4th century, you get to a situation in which lots and lots of churches have all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They don't have 5th Gospel, or 6th Gospel, or ninth Gospel, or 28th Gospel. So they don't have the Gospel according to St. Thomas, or the Gospel according to Mary Magdalene. Not because these were harder to get, or these were more secret, or you couldn't come by them easily. Instead, they were seen as actually belonging to a different religious tradition. Rather than Christianity, they were Gnostic Gospels, and they belonged to the Gnostic religion. So, in the ancient world, there was no conception that these books had actually been written by the Apostle Thomas or by St. Mary Magdalene. Instead, these were written by Gnostic sects who were kind of doing a mashup of Christianity with Platonism and Eastern religion. And they were kind of creating this new hybrid that was seen by the church as a totally different thing distinct from Christianity. So, in all the early sources, sources we find, all that they're reading are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the four Christian Gospels. So, how did things come to be authorized for public worship? So it would be a bishop that said, yeah, absolutely, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or the gospel according to St. Peter? I don't know about that one. That sounds a little suspect to me. Let's do some research and figure out how old it is and if St. Peter really wrote it. And so if you could prove definitive apostolic authorship, if you could actually prove that St. John wrote something, if you could talk to somebody who talked to somebody who talked to somebody who talked to somebody who talked to St. John, and St. John was like, yeah, I wrote this thing, 
then that was criteria for inclusion in the canon. This is something we should be reading every single Sunday if, in fact, it was written by one of Jesus' disciples who is recording his word. In the early church, there was no controversy over who wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was Matthew, the tax collector, Mark, who was not one of the apostles, not one of the disciples, Luke, the physician, also not an apostle, but a disciple, and John, the beloved disciple, the youngest disciple, the one who stood at the foot of the cross with Mary. How do we know there was no controversy over this? We have lots of writings from the early church which record a ton of controversies, but there is nothing that finds the authorship of these four books controversial. Instead of controversy over authorship, we actually have some eyewitness accounts uh, talking about who wrote these things. And one is this guy Papias of Heropolis. Papias was a bishop in the early church, and he was in the first generation of Christians after the apostles. And Papias said, and this is a quote from Papias, I used to inquire about what Andrew or Peter had said, or Philip or Thomas or James or John or Matthew or any of the other of the Lord's disciples, and what Ariston and John, the disciple of the Lord, were saying. For books to read are not as useful to me as the living voices sounding out clearly up to the present day in the person of their authors. So Papias tells us that he actually knew St. John. He knew John, the disciple of the Lord. He uses some interesting language for St. John. Sometimes he says John the Apostle. Sometimes he says John the Elder. There are scholars who disagree. Maybe there were two Johns at Ephesus. Maybe there was one John at Ephesus who went by these two titles. Regardless, the, the church remembers that Papias knew St. John the Apostle. So when Papias talks about who wrote the Gospels, when, how, why, he's actually, it's, it's an eyewitness account. He has met, if not Mark, then people that knew Mark and told him about him. If not Matthew, then people who were there when Matthew was composing the Gospel, who knew all the facts as eyewitnesses, which Papias is reporting. So, what does he say about these various authors? Papias tells us that Matthew put together the oracles of the Lord in the Hebrew language, and each one interpreted them as best he could. And here, Papias may not actually mean Hebrew-Hebrew, he may mean the language spoken by the Hebrew people at the time, which was Aramaic. We say this because uh, St. Jerome records having found an original copy of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, and it was in Aramaic. The church remembers Matthew as the first gospel composed. It is a gospel composed for the Jewish community at Antioch. Antioch, of course, where the the term Christian is first used. And it was written for a community that was already immersed in Judaism. Some gospels will say, the Jewish people have a tradition where they wash the inside of the pot and the outside of the pot. Matthew doesn't say anything like that. He makes no explanation for Jewish custom, Jewish tradition, for the theology of the Torah, he assumes that you know all that because he is writing to and for the Jewish community of Antioch. The Gospels are arranged Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament is because this is the order in which the church remembers the Gospels being written, that Matthew was the first, this Aramaic Jewish Gospel, that Mark was the second, that Luke was the third, and that John was written last. Now you might be saying to yourself, but wait a minute, I read somewhere that Mark was written first. There are two ways of dating the Gospels. So I'll tell you a little bit more about the church tradition and the eyewitness accounts, 
and then we will get into the second tradition of dating the Gospels. Mark, Papias says, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he related the sayings or deeds of Christ, for he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him. But afterwards, as I said, he accompanied Peter, who accommodated his instruction to the necessities of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a regular narrative of the Lord's sayings. Wherefore Mark made no mistake in thus writing some things as he remembered them. For of one thing he took special care, not to omit anything he had heard, and not to put anything fictitious into the statements. So St. Mark, says Papias of Heropolis, was going around with Peter, he was his assistant, and he would hear good sermons day after day. And he was like, man, somebody should write this stuff down. Ah, it'd be such a tragedy if this got lost. And eventually he was like, why not me? So he writes down basically all of the preachings of Peter. Mark and Peter are in Rome, and it's believed that this happens sometime either just before or just after Peter's death. There's um, one statement that Peter gave his consent to the project, so we think it was started before he died, but Papias is clearly saying there was no no opportunity for Peter to check Mark's work, because Mark got a lot of stuff completely out of order. So um, if you were reading the chronology of events in, um, say, the Gospel of John and the chronology of events in the Gospel of Mark, Papias would say, trust John on that one, because Mark is not writing these events in order. So we think that Peter was killed sometime around AD 64 in the city of Rome under the persecution of the emperor Nero. So that would mean that Mark is writing sometime a little before or a little after the the year 64 AD. Mark then goes to Egypt and he founds the church in Alexandria. There's a story that he gets off the boat at the port of Alexandria, and he's been walking and walking and walking to even get to the boat, uh, which took him to Alexandria, and his shoes are totally falling apart. And he gets off the boat, doesn't know a single person in Alexandria, doesn't know anything about Egyptian culture, feels very out of place, and he goes to a shoe store. And he goes into this cobbler's little sort of hovel of a shop, and he's like, hey, my sandals totally falling apart. Can you do something for me? And the cobbler says, sure. So he's working on his sandals, he's sewing them back together. Mark's reading Time magazine, sitting in a chair, and uh, the cobbler pokes his finger with the needle and goes, Ah, to the unknown god! And Mark says, Wait, what? He said, I said, to the unknown god! I poked my finger, it hurt like the dickens! And Mark says, Oh, you know what? I've actually come here to Alexandria to tell you about the unknown god. And this is the first kind of theological conversation Mark gets to have in Egypt, and that cobbler's shop becomes the first church in Alexandria. It's kind of a wonderful story. So Mark writes down the preaching of Peter, but not in order. So in Mark, we're kind of getting this representation of what Peter thought and taught. We don't have a lot of Papias's writings preserved, and nothing in what is preserved gives us the details about St. Luke, but fortunately Luke tells us something of his own details. St. Luke starts out his account, since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. So we don't know exactly when Luke is writing, but we do know that there have been 
other people writing gospels before him. Since other people have sought out to do this, I thought, why not me too? And he says he investigates the things from the very first, speaks to lots of eyewitnesses, and writes his own account of the gospel. Luke also has Luke Part 2, the sequel, which is called The Acts of the Apostles. That's just really a continuation of the gospel according to Luke. It's also addressed to the same guy, Theophilus. And in it, there's something interesting that happens in the narrative. So in chapters 1 through the beginning of chapter 16, it's all told in the third person. They went here, they did this, they rented a car, it was a Chevy, they had a hamburger. But then in chapter 16, he switches to we. Then we had to go to the grocery store and it was already closed, so we got back in our Ford Fiesta and we went. And it is this narrative shift because Luke is actually along in part of this journey with St. Paul. The church remembers Luke not as one of the apostles, but as one of the original disciples. So Papias says, Mark didn't hear the Lord, he didn't know the Lord, he learned everything from Peter. The church remembers that Luke actually was present as one of the 70, one of those sent out by Christ who um, followed Christ around, but he wasn't part of the inner circle. He wasn't part of the 12 apostles. So some of the things that he's narrating are things that were told him by the apostles and possibly by the Virgin Mary. Um, Other things that he's narrating are um, things that he actually witnessed firsthand. And by the time you get to Act 16, there's lots of stuff that he witnessed firsthand because he was there serving with Paul in those times. So the other Gospels are really written to specific church communities, or you could also just say are written to the church. They're just written to Christianity. But Luke's is addressed to someone, most excellent Theophilus. Who is Theophilus? There are lots of theories on this. One is that Theophilus is just a friend of God, a lover of God. So if you are a lover of God, if you are a friend of God, Luke's gospel is written for you. But then there's also another theory, which is pretty interesting. So last time we talked a little bit about the importance of both the kingship in Judah before the fall of Jerusalem, and also the high priesthood, the high priesthood being this almost parallel institution of cultural importance and infinitely greater in religious importance. The high priest was one of the most important people in the entire world for Judaism. And there is a Theophilus. Theophilus ben Ananus was high priest from the year 37 through the year 41. And he's actually the brother-in-law of Joseph Caiaphas, who's the high priest before whom Jesus is brought. He's also the father of Matthias, who's the second to the last high priest before the fall of the temple. So this particular Theophilus is a really important figure in Judaism. And if Luke is writing to this Theophilus, then there's some interesting things about this gospel that would make it particularly appealing. So there's a lot of stuff in Luke that happens in the temple. Luke really focuses on what Christ did in the temple, what Christ taught in the temple, on on rituals that were performed in the temple. And as you may remember from last week, the Sadducees were the party that controlled temple worship, that from which the high priest came during this time. And Luke's gospel records a lot of interactions between Christ and the Sadducees that the other gospels don't focus on as much. This is not in any way proof that this is definitely written to the high priest Theophilus, but it's kind of an interesting theory about who Theophilus might have been. And lastly, there's a gospel according to St. John. 
St. John's Gospel, the Church Remembers, was written at Ephesus sometime between 95 and 98, so it's the last gospel written. It's fairly late in terms of this chronology. St. John was the youngest disciple. If you look at um, historical paintings, he's always painted without a beard, even in very early icons. He was kind of a young man when the events uh, depicted in the gospels were taking place. And it's remembered that he moved to Ephesus with Jesus' mother Mary after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and that he writes his gospel to, um, in a sense, counteract some misunderstandings that Gentile Christians have about Christianity. So, during this time in the 90s, you have the rise of lots of kind of alternative versions of Christianity that are radically reinterpreting the events of the Gospels and uh, reinterpreting some of these written texts that have already been written. So, John seeks to make explicit the theology of Christianity, explicit the revelation that he received from Christ in his own gospel. So, John is often called the theological gospel. It is um, the gospel that was reserved for the baptized in the early church. So, as you were preparing for baptism, you would definitely read all of Matthew. You might also read Mark and Luke, and then you would wait to read John until you had been baptized, because it was thought that, that it really requires a huge dose of grace even to understand John, even to sort of come before John without radical misunderstanding. There's a memory from uh, one writer in the early church that John lived to be a very old age in the city of Ephesus, and that every single Sunday he was invited to preach the sermon in the church at Ephesus. And so every Sunday, two kind of hulking young men would go out into the congregation and they would pick up this ancient man by the arms because he could no longer walk, and they would bring him out in front of the altar and he would open his eyes and look at the people and he would preach the same sermon every Sunday. And that sermon was, little children love one another. And John's gospel, also his letters, are very much about love, about God being love, about the pure nature of God being love, which is very beautiful. So, on the one hand, John is sometimes the hardest gospel to understand, and on the other, it's sometimes the easiest gospel to understand, because I think all of us have this innate sense that God is love. So, that's the church's version of where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John come from. And that remains the dominant narrative all the way up to the 1800s. In the year 1800, you have a book called System of Transcendental Idealism, catchy title, by this guy F.C. Bauer. And Bauer has this theory that history, he says as a quote from Bauer, history as a whole is a progressive, gradual unveiling of the absolute. So Bauer is hugely influenced by the philosopher Hegel, and as is a lot of German thinking at this time. And he has this theory that... Um, ideas of religion progress along this kind of chronological timeline. So, you have extremely primitive religion, and then you have primitive religion with some much better told stories, like the Greek myths, and then you have um, a refinement of that primitive religion that's a little bit less primitive, which he would very condescendingly, horribly call Judaism. Um, and then you have the, the true revelation of the fullness of spirituality, which is Christianity. So, he says, in Christianity, 
Man, for the first time, knows himself to be raised into the element of the spirit and spiritual life. His relationship to God now becomes, for the first time, the relationship of spirit to spirit. And this is pure, 100%, straight out of the book Hegel. So, for Hegel, the idea of a personal God, a God that actually loves people and feels things, this conception of God is actually replaced with a very different conception of God. God as more of this kind of like universal force that's present in the world that is kind of revealing ideas which are in fact himself or something. This is, you know, not really my cup of tea. So, Bauer cases everything in historical language, the the uh, language of historical research. So, he says, my standpoint in one word is historical. This alone is the basis on which to set forth a given fact insofar as it is overall possible to understand it in pure objectivity. So, pure objectivity is what Bauer is striving for. His pure objectivity is, does something agree with Hegel or not? That's his criteria for pure objectivity. So, it's a little bit of a different criteria than we would think of as a sort of criterion of historical uh, objectivity. And one of... um, one of Bauer's guiding hypotheses, one thing that can let you know whether or not something is um, true for Jesus is that he says, the teaching of Jesus contains nothing that does not have a purely moral tendency. In the depth of his moral consciousness, he recognized himself as the son of God, insofar as the idea of morally good in its purity is constituted in his consciousness. So, what does it mean for Bauer to be the son of God? So, for son of God for Bauer means someone who has perfect morality. Like, the perfection of morality is made manifest in the consciousness of Jesus. So, the perfection of um, God's wisdom, in a sense, is made manifest in him. It's communicated to the world. So, he is the son of God. It doesn't actually mean that Jesus is divine or really any different from other humans. Instead, it means that he has the best teaching, the most authoritative moral teaching. So, for Bauer, the essence, the heart of Christianity is a teaching like um, anyone who looks on a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Bauer would say, whoa, that is like some really next level morality. There's no other moral system that says like just looking on someone is as bad as committing adultery. That's like that's setting the moral bar super duper duper high. So, this is what it's all about. But to get people to actually take this on, to get people to believe in this, you have to really jazz it up. So, Christianity is really just about teaching people to do the right thing in every situation. But for primitive people, that's not going to be enough. So, you have to have some kind of made-up mythology surrounding that. So, if a teacher just says, um, stop, checking people out at the beach when they're not wearing much clothing, people are going to be like, pshaw, you know, what What else am I going to do on a Saturday? But if the te- they read a story about a teacher who says that and then offers 5,000 people free dinner or um, can zap somebody and they come back to life or the day that they die, the temple is torn and the curtain of the temple is torn in two and there's a giant eclipse and everyone is like, whoa, amazing, and the dead are raised to life, then people might be like, okay, I'm going to skip the beach or I'm going to wear some blinders or something. No more checking out people in their bathing suits. So, for Bauer, 
every story of a miracle, every story of um, the divinity of Christ, everything that actually relates to what we would think of as kind of the religious stuff in the New Testament, that's all just kind of malarkey that's added in to fool the rubes into becoming better people. This is a pretty aberrant reading of the New Testament. This doesn't really have much to do with anything in the historical Christian tradition or what uh, Christian traditions like mine would make of the New Testament. However, this is actually the foundation of the historical critical method. F.C. Bauer is the father of this method of critiquing the New Testament. So, um, for Bauer, because John is so theological, he says that John is more speculative than historical. He says the composer of the gospel, which cannot be John, son of Zebedee, or the beloved disciple, but someone who else, writing considerably later, lived more in the world of ideas than in history, and pronounced what were among his highest ideas, which moved the spirit filled with the absolute content of Christian consciousness. Whoa! So, So, Bauer is the first to suggest that John is so lofty that he cannot be a kind of simple guy from the Judean countryside. John is really this kind of like Gentile Christian. He's almost a Greek philosopher who is taking these like really big ideas and he's thinking them over. He was a Hegelian before there was Hegel and he is committing all this stuff to paper as a great philosopher. So, he's definitely not just like John, the son of Zebedee, some fisherman? Like, how could that possibly be the case? This is clearly a gospel that's written much, much, much later than all the others. The synoptics are simple. The synoptics are Jewish. John is 100% Greek. He's clearly never been to Jerusalem. He doesn't know the first thing about Judaism for Bauer. And this becomes a guiding principle of the dating of the gospels um, for all those kind of in the historical critical tradition. So, there are some in the historical critical tradition who would say, uh, the miracles, no, this could have happened. I mean, Jesus is divine, like, we we believe that. And there there are other sort of hardliners like Bauer, like um, later in the sort of next generation, Heinrich Julius Holtzmann, who would say, all the miracle stories, a bunch of schlock, just put made-up stuff, they're just mythology, it's all about the moral content. Um, And... They started dating, uh, Holtzman and and a couple of other people, Vilke and Weiss, um, started dating uh, the Gospels, not in the sort of tradition of Papias of Hierapolis, uh, the tradition mentioned by Irenaeus, by all these early church folks, but they took the kind of evidence within the Gospels and rearranged them. So, they would say that not Matthew, but Mark is the first gospel written, because it's so simple, because it's not very miraculous, because it's got a lot of moral teaching. So, if that's your criterion for objective truth, if it's very moral, if it seems very simple and Jewish, if it's totally in line with Hegel, then Mark must be the first gospel. After that, you have Matthew. After that, you have Luke. And they're both largely plagiarizing Mark because they don't know anything about real Christianity. Only Mark does. So, they're taking stuff from Mark, and then maybe they plagiarize some other text too because clearly we don't know who wrote them, but we do know that they weren't Matthew and they weren't Luke. And Mark probably wasn't Mark either. 
Um, and then like way later, you get some guy wearing a toga who's from Athens or something calling himself John the Evangelist. And he writes this gospel that has nothing to do with Judaism. That's pure philosophy, pure spirit, pure Hegel. And um, it's both the best and the worst. The best because it's got all the great ideas there written out explicit. The worst because it is the least historical. You can't do anything with it historically. It does not relate to Judaism at all. And that kind of becomes the basis for this historical critical method of dating the Gospels. And through the 1800s, and especially in the period of Romanticism, this period in which people thought like, oh, the human intellect, it's so powerful, we can overcome any obstacle. Even if something is totally vague and there's no historical evidence, we are going to solve the problem just by sitting down at our desks and closing our eyes and thinking really hard. This method becomes really popular throughout the, the 19th century, throughout the 1800s, into the 20th century, it becomes dominant. So if you study um, kind of uh, biblical stuff at an American university in the 1950s, 1960s, this would be very normative. The problem is that uh, at some point, people find a couple of archaeological discoveries that really invalidate a lot of this chronology. One of them are the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the series of caves in Qumran, in, in modern-day Israel-Palestine, they find this huge cache of scrolls. And some of them are just the Old Testament. Some of them are things written by and for this specific community at Qumran. So this was an intensely Jewish community. They were so Jewish that they thought everybody else who was Jewish was not actually Jewish anymore. They, they were convinced that they were the true Judaism. They may have had an intimate relationship with the temple, with the high priesthood, but they were not Greek in any way. And all of their stuff sounds like it's written by John. It is so in line with the way John writes, with the way John thinks, with John's ideas. And so, if Bauer were alive today and he had access to the Sea Scrolls, he would say, oh man, I really missed the boat on John. John is not the least Jewish gospel written by someone who clearly knows nothing about Judaism. John sounds exactly like the Qumran community, the people who thought of themselves as being more Jewish than anybody else who was Jewish, the insiderist of insiders, so inside that they became outsiders because they rejected everyone else. That was problematic. Another thing that was found is the earliest fragment of any gospel that we have. It was found in Egypt. Scholars have dated it to about 123 AD. And guess what gospel it comes from? It's John. So, this idea that John was written in um, probably between 95 and 98, this has actually become popular again. The idea that Mark is first, then Matthew, then Luke it's really up for debate again. There is no absolute orthodoxy based on the historical critical method because a lot of the foundational assumptions of the historical critical method have nothing to do either with A, actual literary criticism, B, certainly science or history, and C, the Christian tradition. They just have to do with this philosopher Hegel. So there are lots of people who still love the historical critical method, who still swear by it, who still think that John was probably written in like 121 right before this fragment was found. But that is a theory uh, that's kind of on the wane. So we have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What else is in the Bible? A whole bunch of letters. Obviously, we have Acts, we have the Revelation. But the, the majority of the books, in terms of like, how many books did somebody write? These are the letters of Paul. And there's also controversy over these. So by the year, probably around 90, um, 
or maybe a little bit later, when we have this compilation of the letters of Paul called the Apostolicon, there is no doubt that Ephesians and Corinthians and um, Colossians and all these, these Pauline letters were written by this guy, Paul of Tarsus. They're all collected into this book, the Apostolicon, by a heretic named Marcion. We can talk about him later. And um, it's, there's total general recognition that Paul wrote the letters of Paul. It's not until you get into this era, the 19th century, of the historical critical method that people start debating whether or not Paul wrote things. And they start debating those for two reasons. One, there's some stuff in Paul that doesn't agree with this Hegelian worldview, with the theology of this movement. So that's problematic, so they kind of want to get those out of there. But two, and probably a, a much stronger reason for them, is that there are these massive textual differences within Paul. So, at sometimes Paul's sort of using more kind of simple, everyday Greek. Sometimes Paul is using highfalutin, kind of poetic Greek. There are some letters that have a whole lot of vocabulary that don't appear in the other letters, and it really looks like different people wrote all these letters. So, for these 19th century Germans who weren't particularly interested in eyewitness accounts, they weren't really interested in classicism or in... Um, in anything historical in terms of like what the people who were there actually said, they said, okay, well, these must be written by different people. And they started dating them according to whether or not they were more Greek or more Jewish and later and earlier and so forth. And they decided that some of the letters that were written by Paul were written by Paul. And some of the other letters that were written by Paul were not written by Paul, but somebody else, we don't know who. So, how would the church explain this big obvious issue, which is that, uh, some of these letters have radically different vocabulary, radically different writing styles than the other letters. That does seem like a big problem, right? Could Paul actually have written all these? And the church would say, as her church has always said, no, Paul did not write any of the letters of Paul. Shocking, right? That's what the church has always claimed. And to us, that seems like a big deal. To the church, and to other generations of Christians, they would say, of course he didn't write them. He had an amanuensis. Paul always traveled with a secretary to write his letters. To us, that sounds like a ridiculous luxury, as though Paul is some like 1950s CEO. But in the ancient world, reading and writing were two separate skills. So you would have a professional scribe, a professional writer, who would write things for you. And this wasn't just someone who would take dictation because you couldn't make letters on a page. People, lots of people could, who could read could also write letters, write their name, sign things, write little notes, but they didn't write well. And so today, if you work at um, some technology company, you might have an engineer who writes out, um, circuit board A375 needs to be attached to slot B27869, um, and this will uh, lead to a current which will... And then they will give that to a copywriter who's actually giving you the instructions for how to put your stereo together. And they'll be like, take these two little wires, twist them together and stick them into the back of your stereo. And they'll, they'll translate it into language that is actually effective. And in the ancient world, the same thing occurred. So I, as a someone who is an important person writing this very expensive letter, if you remember, the letter to the Romans took about $5,000 to write out because you're writing on expensive stuff with expensive stuff, employing a scribe. Um, I, as someone who's writing this important letter, going to great expense to do it, would have someone who is going to write well for me. 
So I might say, um, okay, take a letter to the governor. Tell him I'm really grateful for his gift and that I will be arriving uh, on Thursday on a flight from Phoenix and I will go straight to the governor's mansion. And the amanuensis will write, will write out, Oh, most excellent governor, it was with trembling that I opened the box containing the beautiful crystal bowl, which I have now filled with delicious candies. And I cannot wait to see you because my flight will be arriving from Phoenix at 5.45 on Thursday. And with great haste, I will proceed immediately to your palace. So an amanuensis is the one actually kind of choosing the verbiage, choosing the vocabulary, while the author is just giving the content. So how do we know this is the case? Well, for one thing, all the letters use different vocabulary. But for another, if you look at one of the most authoritatively, absolutely Pauline letters, one of the letters that's never been questioned by Paul uh, as having Pauline authorship, the, the, the letter to the Romans. Like, this is as Paul as Paul gets. There's li- like never been anybody in the history of scholarship that said Paul didn't write Romans. If you go to the 16th chapter of Romans... There are lots of goodbyes being said. You know, say hi to Larry, say hi to my brother Ted, and uh, there are all these kind of like salutations to people in the Roman community. And then it says, I, Tertius, who write this, also greet you. Paul's letter to the Romans is written by some guy named Tertius. We also have lots of introductions to the letters of Paul, which might say like, um, Paul, a servant in Christ, and Timothy greet you. Could Timothy have been the one writing that letter? Could Onesimus have written letters? Could Luke have written letters? It's quite possible. Some scholars have used um, algorithmic analysis and gone through Luke and Acts and looked for similar less uh, uh, language in the letters of Paul and have found them in some of Paul's later letters. So it may be that Luke was actually writing out the letters of Paul, that Luke was serving as the amanuensis. So, You have these two ways of dating the letters of Paul, two ways of thinking about the letters of Paul. On the one hand, you have the historical critical method, which says, do these focus on morality and Hegelian philosophy? Uh, And do these have language that's consistent with the one of the letters that we know Paul wrote, like Romans? If it sounds like Romans, if it focuses on morality, if it doesn't mention the divinity of Christ, it's definitely Pauline. If it has language that's different from Romans, and if it talks too much about Christ being divine, like Colossians, it's clearly some like Gentile Greek writing this way later. We don't know who it was, but we know it wasn't Paul. It's one side. The other side is to say, Paul didn't even write Romans. Tertius wrote Romans. The vocabulary is not how you know whether or not Paul wrote it. How you know whether or not Paul wrote it is what did eyewitnesses say? What did people in the first century think about this? What did the churches Paul was writing to say about whether or not this was written by Paul? Did the people who knew Paul say that this letter came from Paul? That's the way that the church dated these things. So, set before you is the path of the church and the path of the historical critical method. Honestly, you can probably tell my bias, I'm more of a church person, but I think the historical critical method has led to some wonderful things. Like we have discovered great things about the scripture. If it weren't for the historical critical method, we wouldn't be thinking about who this Theophilus was. We wouldn't have learned that there was a high priest named Theophilus from um, Josephus. I mean, I think the historical critical method is a a great way to be asking questions. I think it's problematic when you start... um, with a philosophical school like Hegelianism that has nothing to do with Christianity and say that this must be the primary content of the Christian tradition. 
because that's obviously crazy. And I think that this historical critical method is a great way to ask questions, but it's not a very helpful way to make absolute pronouncements. And we've gotten to a state in some parts of Christianity where you might scoff at an idea like papal infallibility being absurd, but then you grant a certain amount of almost infallibility to someone like F.C. Bauer, saying that, well, if he says that Mark came first, then all of the evidence to the contrary must be incorrect, because what he's doing looks kind of like science. But in fact, what they're doing is not really science. The historical critical method is not a form of laboratory experimentation. It's really a form of guesswork. And sometimes it's really good guesswork. It's there are these great educated guesses that bring new truths to light. And other times, they're not. It's more an imposition of a philosophical system like Hegelianism imposed on a very different religious system, Christianity, and seeking to find some sort of hybrid or kind of beat Christianity into a representation of Hegelianism. And to me, that just doesn't really make a tremendous amount of sense. But just my two cents, take it for what it's worth. And I hope you'll join me again for the history of Christianity. Christianity.